Tonight's lesson is lesson 19, Is Hell for Real? And we're going to study into what the Bible has to say on the topic of hellfire. Before we do that, let's have one more word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we ask for the blessing of your spirit tonight as we open up our Bibles and as we look at these precious words of life and truth. Lord, please give us a very clear biblical understanding of this subject that has been often misunderstood and even abused at times throughout history. And so we pray, Lord, for a clear biblical understanding as you will lead and guide us. Help us to uncover the truths that the Bible is revealing. For we ask in Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. So, when you think about punishment and maybe degrees of guilt, what do you think, is there a difference in your mind between a person who kills somebody and somebody who steals, for example, a watermelon? Is there a difference in the degree of, of guilt? Absolutely. Yes. Mm-hmm. So, in a man's law, yes. Yeah. In a man's law, for sure, there's a big difference. Now, if you look at the Decalogue or the Ten Commandments, you know, the Bible says, do not steal, and the Bible says, do not kill, right? Um, but when you, yes, when you look at this, you, you look at the severity of the crime and how people are injured, because you can't really give back somebody's life, can you? So if you were going to punish somebody for stealing, yeah, you can get back another watermelon, but you can't get back your life. So there is, there is a big difference. I mean, it's, it's still a sin is a sin is a sin, right? But there is some difference in the severity of what took place, right? And the consequences of what took place. So when you think about these two people, if they're going to be punished for their sin or for their crime, do you think that the person who killed somebody should get maybe a a sterner punishment than somebody who just stole a watermelon? What do you think? Yes. I don't have to think twice about it. Seems like it. What do you think? Anybody else? Yes. The wages of sin is death. So in the yes. eyes of the holier, righteous God who is on the throne, He's a rightful, fair judge. Yes. And stealing a pencil and committing capital murder, they're going to end up in the same place. They'll end up in the same place, right? Yes, because the, the sin of Adam and Eve was eating a piece of fruit, right? But in doing so, in doing so, they chose to disobey God. They chose to distrust God. They, they in fact, turned the order of our world upside down mm-hmm. by doing that. And they brought death and suffering and pain. So all those things came into the world. But yeah, you would think that, okay, if somebody has a pile of sins that's a mile high versus somebody who has, like, I don't know, a handful of sins in their lives, um, if you think about that, because the Bible says something about judging according to our works, doesn't it? Judging according to our works, they'll be rewarded according to their works. You know, there is some aspect of you can dig yourself a deeper hole. Does that make sense? Yeah. And also, whether you know better or not, like what you know and what you don't know plays a part in it, doesn't it? God wants to hold us accountable for what we know and even what we could know, what we have an opportunity to know. But yeah, if, we're, if somebody is sinning in ignorance, um, that's a, you're a little less culpable than somebody who knows full well what they're doing and very intentionally pursues a course of evil. Adam and Eve, by the way, knew full well and thank God for His mercy that He for, forgave. And yet, still, the suffering came. Still, the curse came. Still, all this trouble came in the world. 
So these are just some, just some thoughts to get our brains thinking a little bit. Now here's another thought about mercy. What do you think, this is probably a no-brainer, but you can just explain to me your reasoning for it, but uh, what's more merciful, a quick death or endless torture? Early equals quick death. Quick death, right? So like if you have just endless torture where you never die, like you just keep living and you're endlessly tortured, versus you actually do die, if you ask yourself which one of these avenues or choices is more merciful, what would you say? Quick, quick, quick death. death. Right? Yeah. So nobody wants to suffer in torture, especially endless. So we want to understand God's love. We want to understand God's mercy. And we want to understand God's justice in his work of judgment. How is it that God works? And what does the Bible clearly say about who God is and how God will deal with the sin problem, how God will reward sin, how God will judge. We want to make sure that we have a clear understanding of this topic because a lot of people have run various ways with the topic of hellfire. Some people say, well, God's too good to punish anybody. Well, the Bible says that God will have justice, that God is a righteous and holy God, doesn't it? Tells us that. Some people are trying to say that everyone's going to be saved. Well, that's not what the Bible says. You have to make your choice whether you're going to follow Jesus or not. Not everybody's going to be saved. The Bible's crystal clear about that. In fact, the majority on planet Earth will not be saved. The Bible is very clear because they don't, they don't follow the ways of righteousness and the opportunities that God gives them and the voice of the Holy Spirit speaking to them. So that could be a whole study of itself. But essentially, we want to think about God's fairness, God's character qualities like mercy and love, and justice. How is God just in what he does when he judges folks? And what we have heard about hellfire, the question I have is, do we understand it really the way the Bible teaches it? We want to make sure that we always go back to the Bible for whatever we look at, whatever we study. We have to find our answers clearly from the Word of God, not from Greek mythology, not from, uh, you know, liberal society today and people's opinions and what they think. What matters is what the Bible says. Amen. What matters is what the Word of God says to us. So, with that said, let's open up our Bibles to Revelation 14. We're looking at the third angel's message because there is a very clear warning about judgment for sin given to us in the third angel's message. Revelation 14 Verses 9 through 11. Can somebody please read that for us? And the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast in his image, and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of indignation, and he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever, and they have no rest day nor night, who worship the beast and his image, and whosoever receive, receiveth the mark of his name. All right, thank you very much. So in the third angel, we have this warning given in a loud voice to not worship the beast 
or his image or to receive his mark. And that's a message that we're going to be studying into in some upcoming lessons. We're going to be looking more specifically at this third angel's message. But the point we want to focus in on tonight is the punishment for those who do receive the mark of the beast. One of those aspects of this punishment is seen in Revelation 16, which we've already looked at with the falling of the plagues upon those who have received the mark of the beast. They are the ones who receive the plagues in Revelation 16. And that already causes a bunch of pain and suffering for those wicked ones who are living on the earth in the very last days who receive the mark of the beast. Now, the other aspect of this third angel's message, again, is the, the aspect of punishment. And that was just part of it, but there's more to it. Notice now verse 10. The same, meaning those who receive the mark, or the worship the image, or the beast, it says in verse 10, The same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation, and he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. So does God tell us that there's a fiery judgment for sin that will come upon the wicked who have received the mark of the beast? Yes. Yes. Very clearly, there is fiery judgment. There is torment involved. There is brimstone. Uh, of course, you can see some of the reasons why God has to deliver a very stern punishment, but he also warns us about it beforehand, doesn't he? He says, you don't have to go there. You don't have to experience this fiery torment and judgment because Jesus paid for it on the cross, didn't he? Yes, he did. Yeah, Jesus paid for it. So we don't have to experience that if we choose to follow God. He's already set us free. If we would just come to Jesus and experience that freedom, let him set us free. Let him come into your heart. So Jesus has paid the price. We need to experience that by coming to Christ. So it continues now in verse 11. And the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever. So pretty much out of sight, the smoke is ascending up, the smoke of their torment. And it says they have no rest day nor night who worship the beast and his image and whosoever receives the mark of his name. Now we know that the wrath of God, again, it begins in those seven last plagues, just before the all-powerful coming of Jesus Christ in glory, which we see. We've already looked at that. So what else do we see in the Bible about this, this lake of fire and brimstone? Well, let's go to Revelation 20, verses 9 and 10. Revelation 20, we looked at this a little bit in our last study, where we were talking about the 1,000 years. And we recognized that it happens right at the end of the 1,000 years. There is a great lake of fire that is described here. So, Revelation 20, verses 9 and 10. Could somebody please read that for us? They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Okay. So here we have this lake of fire. Now, you notice in verse 9 that it's on the breadth of the earth where this lake of fire falls. And the city of God is already there, the camp of the saints. All of the wicked are surrounding the holy city. The Bible says that the fire comes down from God and... Whoosh, consumes the wicked out there, outside of the city of New Jerusalem. 
the New Jerusalem. We're going to be studying about that subject in our next lesson, New Jerusalem. I'm looking forward to that, aren't you? Heaven and the new earth, New Jerusalem. It's going to be beautiful to see how the Bible reveals God's plan for eternity. So here we find that this fire falls out there outside of the, the city, the camp of the saints. The wicked are devoured. It happens on the breadth of the earth. It's not a hot spot down in the center of the earth somewhere like people have imagined it to be, like Greek mythology taught. No, it's on the surface of the earth and the devil's there. And guess what? The devil's not in charge of hell. He's not in charge of the lake of fire, is he? He gets punished in the lake of fire. So we see that in verse 10. It says, And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, or you might consider they had been thrown. We'll see a verse on that in just a moment. And shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. That expression, in very a lot of particular, given towards the devil and his suffering, his punishment, because if you think about it, this is the guy who instigated sin on this planet. And as a matter of fact, he instigated sin in heaven first. There was war between Michael and his angels and the devil and his angels. He took a third of the angels of heaven. So he instigated sin in heaven and he instigated sin on earth. You can be sure that he in particular is going to suffer. That he in particular is going to, to be judged. Because... If you're so guilty, like I said before, if your sins are a mile high or higher, you're going to be in trouble for that. If you choose to embrace that sin, you know, God's going to judge. God's going to judge. So the Bible very specifically mentions the devil's punishment here. We're going to look at that more as we get towards the end of our lesson. But I just wanted to point it out as we're getting started. Now, you might ask the question, it says that the... The beast and the false prophet are there in this lake of fire. We're going to study more about those characters. We have studied already about the beast a bit. We're going to study more about the beast and about the false prophet in an upcoming lesson. So coming very soon, we'll look at them more. But one thing we do want to point out right here is Revelation 19 and verse 20. I'm going to go ahead and read this one, Revelation 19, 20. And the beast was taken... And with him, the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast, and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into a lake of fire burning with brimstone. And then it says, verse 21, And the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse which sword proceeded out of his mouth and all the fowls were filled with their flesh. Well, Revelation 19 pictures the, the coming of Jesus in all glory and power. But when Jesus comes, it, it points out here that the beast and the false prophet, they receive a fiery judgment at that point when the Lord Jesus comes again. So God delivers fire from heaven on these uh, prophetic powers. Okay. A lot of people want to pin it down to an individual. Yes, there, there are individual leaders involved, but it's bigger than that. These are, these are powers. These are um, political powers and forces. We've looked at a beast before in prophecy. A beast is a political power. And so um, organizational systems that the devil uses to deceive people. We've looked clearly at that in some of our previous lessons. So we see that when Jesus comes again, those organizational uh, you know, tools of the devil are burned in a fire when Jesus comes. And the persons associated with 
those powers, receive the plagues, and they receive those judgments falling from God, and they also receive death by either the sword or word of the Lord, or by fire falling on them, or by hailstones falling on them, all kinds of things that happen when Jesus comes again and those plagues are poured out. So those organizations get destroyed when Jesus comes the second time, and that's why now the Bible mentions the lake of fire at the end of the 1,000 years, and how, how everybody else, the devil and all of his followers, get to experience the lake of fire. Whereas, you know, it was a more limited group, plus the organizations that Satan used to deceive, those get burned when Jesus comes the second time. We also know from 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 10, that when the Lord Jesus comes, there is definitely fire that is present, that gets poured out on, on many of those who are living in wickedness. So this is especially for those wicked ones who are living upon the earth when Jesus comes. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 10, and the Bible reads this way. It says, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. So when Jesus comes again, when Jesus comes like a thief, we've talked about this, there is fire burning things, elements melting, the earth and the works therein getting burned up. So we can see how these powers, such as the beast and the false prophet, they meet a fiery judgment when Jesus comes the second time. And then at the end of the 1,000 years, all of the wicked stand before God and stand before the holy city, and the devil and his angels and all of his wicked followers from every age of earth's history they meet their fate after facing the judge. They meet the lake of fire. Is this making sense so far? And we see clearly that, that God's work of judgment and understanding has to take place before these people face the lake of fire. And nobody's there in the lake of fire right now. The lake of fire is future, after the 1,000 years, right at the end of the 1,000 years. That's when the lake of fire comes. But again, there will be some fire when Jesus comes a second time and a lot of things will be burned up, and these corrupt, wicked organizations that Satan uses, they get burned in fire when Jesus comes. Making sense so far? Yes. All right. So, uh, some things that we looked at, I'll just mention them now, uh, because a lot of people think, oh, well, people are just in hellfire right now. They're just burning right now. Well, that's not what the Bible says, because we learn from Ecclesiastes 9, 5, and 6, and 10, that the living know that they will die, but the dead know how much? Nothing. Nothing. The Bible says they don't know anything. So nobody could be there right now. And there's another verse that's from the words of Jesus that's very clear on this point. So let's take a look at it briefly. This is John 5, verse 29. John 5, verse 29. And here the Bible says, I'm going to read this one too. John 5, 29. It says, in fact, I'm going to start with verse 28. 28 says, Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming. That's future, isn't it? Jesus said the hour is coming in which all that are where? In the graves. That's John 5, 28. All that are in the graves shall hear his voice. Now verse 29. And shall come forth they that have done good unto the resurrection of life and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation or condemnation. So, so they have to be resurrected to face their judgment. 
The righteous are resurrected to receive their rewards of God's blessing. The wicked are resurrected to receive their final judgment. And we learned about this when we studied the 1,000 years, that, that those two major resurrections are separated by a period of 1,000 years, that the dead in Christ come up when Jesus blows the trumpet, right? Or whoever blows the trumpet, there's a trumpet sounding. So there's the last trump when Jesus comes. And we know the dead in Christ rise to life. Jesus calls them forth like he called Lazarus, come forth. And so the dead in Christ rise when Jesus comes. That begins the 1,000 years. And the wicked, they will come up. Those who are not blessed and holy, they come up at the end of the 1,000 years. We learned about that in Revelation 20, verses 4 through 6. It tells us about that separation of these two resurrections. So very clearly, from the Bible itself, we know that nobody is there yet. We also know this fire takes place on the surface of the earth. And we also know the devil is not in charge of it. We know the devil is going to get his. It's coming to him. And we know that his organizations and many of his followers, when Jesus came the second time, they already met some fiery judgment. But any persons, they will meet that final fiery judgment, the lake of fire, just like the devil and his angels will meet it. Okay? So we're seeing, hopefully, the pieces coming together here. Now, the next question we have is, who was this fire prepared for? Let's take a look at Matthew 25, verse 41. Then shall he say also unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Okay, yes. So, he says there, um, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire. Another translation of this from the very same Greek words is eternal fire. Okay, we're going to look at that, that concept of eternal fire. Because the book of Jude mentions eternal fire, using this very same phrase. The Greek phrase is identical. Here it says everlasting fire, um, but it's it's called eternal fire. That's another name for this. And so, same Greek Greek phrase, two different English words that were just used. (laughs) Um, Between Jude's Jude's, uh, mention of it and then the mention here in Matthew. So I just want us to understand that. We're going to look at some of the Greek words here as we study. But it says there, depart from me, ye cursed, into eternal fire, or everlasting fire, however you want to call it. It says, prepared for the devil and his angels. So who is it really prepared for initially? The devil and his angels. How sad that so many in the world choose to join the devil and his angels. That they choose to follow in this life the devil and his angels, instead of God who loves them, who gave his own son to die on the cross of Calvary for them that the people would reject that message of Jesus is very, very sad. That people would love sin more than they love the Lord Jesus who gave His life for us. And a lot of people just don't even know. They're just going about their life. Some folks here in the room, maybe all of us can testify somehow that we've been there, careless, living in the world without God, without the way of life, without the way of salvation. But you know, God is calling on people's hearts today. Do you believe that? God is calling us to make a decision for Him, to make a decision for heaven. God is calling us to to give all to Him, to be ready for the return of Jesus, to be ready for eternity in a good way and not facing this this everlasting fire or this eternal fire as it is called in Scripture. So we want to make sure that our hearts are secure in Jesus Christ. Now, the next question we have is, what will this fire actually do to those who are burned by it. Let's take a look. 
Ezekiel 28 and verse 18. In this chapter, Ezekiel 28, we find a description of the fall of Lucifer and how he was cast down to this earth, and then ultimately, what kind of fate will he meet? Let's take a look at verse 18 of Ezekiel 28. Can we have a volunteer who would be able to read that for us? By your many sins and dishonest trade, you have desecrated your sanctuaries. So I made a fire come out from you, and it consumed you. And I reduced you to ashes on the ground in the sight of all who were watching. Okay, thank you. So this chapter very clearly talks about this one who was in Eden, the garden of God. That's in verse 13. And it talks about him being the anointed cherub who covers. That's verse 14. And that he was set so that he was up on the holy mountain of God. It says that he is created perfect in verse 15 of this chapter. And then it tells us how he filled heaven with violence in, in verse 16. That he filled heaven with violence and he had sinned and he was cast out of the mountain of God. The Bible says in verse 16 that he is the covering cherub. And the covering cherubs, of course, it says he was, up, he was from the midst of the stones of fire. Okay? The covering cherub, these cherubs were in the presence of God. God is a consuming fire, the Bible says. And so the devil, Lucifer, he was not the devil before. He was this holy angel who was in heaven, who was righteous. And unfortunately, he chose to worship himself instead of God. He chose to have those wrong thoughts. And we did a whole lesson on this in our series, towards the beginning of our series. We did a whole lesson kind of looking at his, his situation. But verse 18 describes that he defiled the sanctuaries, his sanctuary, basically it's God's sanctuary, but he defiled the holy place because of his iniquities, his lawlessness. And, and God said, I will drive, I will drive thee forth. So, and, I'll, and it says, I will bring a, forth a fire from the midst of thee. It shall devour thee, and I will bring thee to ashes upon the earth in the sight of all them that behold thee. In other words, everyone's going to see when that fire falls on Satan, right? Everyone's going to see when that fire falls on the devil and his angels outside of the holy city. The holy angels are inside. God is inside. The righteous are inside. Everyone is going to see the fire fall on Lucifer. Now, the Bible mentions that he has turned to ashes here. And I want us to see several scriptures that describe this very condition, this very state of the wicked. Because fire naturally produces ashes, correct? Is this what we normally see fire do? Fire burns stuff up, it consumes it, and it creates and it reduces things to ashes. When that fuel is consumed, it becomes ashes. This is what we normally see fire doing. And this is what the Bible describes here, that, that the devil, this covering cherub, will be brought to ashes. Now, again, I want to see some other verses, some scriptures that describe this process. So we're going to do that. We're going to compare. Let's take a look at the book of Malachi, chapter 4. This is right at the very end. It's the last chapter of the Old Testament just before you open to the Gospel of Matthew in the New Testament. So Malachi chapter 4, we are looking at verses 1, 2, and 3. If someone could please read that for us. Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer, evildoer sorry, will be stubble, 
will be stubble, and that day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them, but for you who revere my name, the Son of Righteousness, will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go out and leap like calves released from the stall. It's beautiful. Uh, then you will trample down the wicked. They will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I do these things, says the Lord Almighty. Okay, okay. that's it. Yeah. All right. So the Bible tells us that the day cometh, or the day is coming. Okay, future day. And it says that it shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, all that do wickedly, shall be stubble. Now you've seen stubble out in the fields after they cut the hay. That's stubble sticking up. The farmers like to burn it and get rid of it. That's what it says here, that, that they will be stubble. That day that's coming, it will burn like an oven. There's obviously fire involved here. The Bible says that it will burn them up. The day will burn them up. And it says, says saith the Lord of hosts, that it will leave them neither root nor branch. Now, the root, when you think about the root and branch, they're talking about the devil and his followers, those who follow Satan. You've got the root, the devil, and the branches, the followers. Jesus uses a very sim similar symbol for him and his followers. Jesus says he's the vine, and we are the branches yeah and so if we abide in jesus we will bear fruit john 15 4 and 5 well those who choose to abide in the devil they bear some kind of fruit too but it's not holy fruit it's not righteous fruit it's wicked it's wicked fruit it's rotten grapes the kind that you don't want to eat it's very terrible and so the bible says that the devil nothing will be left either root nor branch okay so they'll be consumed, they'll be burned up, the Bible says. And when you look at verse 3, of course, verse 2 describes the righteous going out like happy cows in the fields, dancing around, jumping. Aren't you looking forward to that? Yes. <laughs> going like a happy cow out in the field? <laughs> yes. Released from the stall, you're set free to enjoy eternity with the Lord Jesus. That is a beautiful verse. That verse 2 there, how the righteous will enjoy eternity. So verse 3 says, You shall tread them down. It says, you shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be, what's the word? Ashes under the soles of your feet in the day that I shall do this, saith the Lord of hosts. So according to Malachi's prophecy, when this day, burning like an oven, comes to be poured upon the wicked, upon the root and the branches of evil, what will happen? What is the result of this flaming fire, this burning day? The Bible tells us that the wicked will be turned to ashes. And remember where this is happening. This is happening on the outside of the city, right? I'm not sure we want to smell a flaming you know, judgment or barbecue outside of the city. It's not just a barbecue. It's much more than that. And it's sadder than that too, isn't it? Because we're talking about people that Jesus died for. People who were made in the image of God. Beings who were created to love, but they, they loved their sin instead of loving God. So it's a very, very sad, sad situation. Uh, but the Bible says that the righteous will tread them down because they will be ashes under the soles of their, of their feet. In other words, according to Malachi's prophecy, the flame goes out, doesn't it? Because it turns them to ashes. Have you ever tried to light ashes on fire? Does it burn? No. doesn't burn. You can try all day. You're not going to light those ashes because it, the fuel that's usable has burned up. 
And so this is how the Bible describes it. Now we want to look at some more verses as well, because again, we have, we have read the concept of eternal fire. We want to understand that. Okay, how does the Bible explain that eternal fire? Well, let's go and take a look at Jude. There's only one chapter in Jude, so if you want to call it Jude chapter 1, you can. But there's only one chapter in Jude, right near Revelation. And we're looking at verse 7. Jude 1, verse 7. So Jude, verse 7. Someone has that for us? Uh, in a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. All right. Thank you very much. So the Bible says here that Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication, and going after strange flesh. So they were living in sin, right? They were living in wickedness. And so God judged them by, by flaming fire from heaven. Fire fell from heaven, burned up those cities, devoured them. And the Bible says that they suffered the vengeance of what? Eternal fire. Remember how I mentioned in Matthew, it said the phrase everlasting fire. And here it said the, the phrase eternal fire in the King James translation. Some other translations may render it slightly differently, but if you look at the Greek in both instances, it's exactly the same. It's that, that idea of eternal fire, ionian, uh, or there's different forms of that word as well, so, which mean eternal or everlasting. Okay, so, so these cities suffered the vengeance of eternal fire. Cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. They suffered eternal fire. And they became an example to those who afterward would live ungodly. Okay, they became an example. So the judgment that God sends, that eternal fire, consumes these cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now you might ask the question, are the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah still burning today? Because, right? Because these are over in the Holy Land. And you can't go over there and find a flaming hot spot in the Holy Land that's burning still today. But you can find remains. You can find remains. They found sulfur balls over there embedded near the Dead Sea where they believe that these cities were actually burning. And in fact, if you take out those, those balls of sulfur embedded in the, the desert sands over there, you can actually light them on fire today and they will burn. And the only place where they can find those is right near the Dead Sea where they would have been snuffed out eventually by water and other things kind of smothering them, probably by, you know, the soils impa impacting around them, ashes or whatever, they just kind of smothered out because otherwise you just can't, you just can't put them out. You know, that stuff burns really, really hot, that sulfur. You don't want to get burned by those sulfur balls. Pretty, pretty terrible stuff. So the, the flames are not still burning over there. Now, the Bible tells us a little bit more about this. It gives us some more insight to what this eternal fire accomplished in those cities of destruction that were judged by God. Let's take a look at 2 Peter 2 and verse 6. This is, by the way, a parallel chapter to the book of Jude. If you ever want to state that out in, your, in the Bible, if you look at 2 Peter 2 and you look at Jude, you will find a lot of similarities between these two chapters. And some people wonder which one was written first, but... Uh, either way, both are extremely valuable and both give us a little bit of extra knowledge about the situation when you compare 2 Peter 2 and Jude. So, who has 2 Peter 2 and verse 6? 
if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. Okay, thank you. So the Bible says, turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemn them with an overthrow, making them an example unto those who afterward should live ungodly. In other words, God says, you want to know what's coming? Take a look at those cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. I judge them by fire, and I will judge the wicked by fire in the proper day. Those who are living on the earth, when I come, there will be a judgment that takes place. And then, especially at the end of the 1,000 years, the final judgment and the lake of fire. So those are an example of God's punishment. Now the Bible tells us in Jude that they suffered the vengeance of eternal fire. But here in Peter, the Bible tells us that those cities, when they suffered the vengeance of God by the flames of fire from heaven, they burned up and turned to ashes. So when the Bible talks about eternal fire here, it's not talking about fire that is eternally burning. Right? Because today those cities are not still burning. It says it's eternal fire, but it reduces things to ashes. That's the clear result of what happened to those cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And that's what we saw in Ezekiel 28, that the devil will be reduced to ashes eventually. And it tells us also that the, um, what was the other one we looked at? Malachi 4, right? It says that they, they turn to ashes. So the fire reduces them to ashes. So, so eternal fire reduces things to ashes. Now you might ask the question, why is the fire called eternal if the fire itself doesn't keep burning forever and ever and ever and ever. Right. There you go. Yes. Yes. Because God is eternal. Think about this. God is considered a consuming fire. And God is eternal. And the fire comes from the eternal God and consumes the wicked. The nature of God is eternal. So the fire that comes from God is called eternal fire. There are two aspects to this. Maybe you have a question about this. I know, because I was thinking of another eternal thing. Correct. Okay. Both are accurate. Okay. okay. But, you, but, but it's exactly right. That God is eternal, and the fire comes from the eternal God. There's another passage in Isaiah, I believe it's 33, where it talks about who will dwell among the everlasting burnings. And, other, and it's asking who's going to dwell among the holy God. And it says that the righteous will, those who fear God, they will dwell among him. It's like, wow, okay, so we're dwelling with the eternal fire, is God. So yes, they suffer the vengeance of eternal fire because it comes from the eternal God, but there is another aspect to this, and that is eternal in consequence. Eternal in, eternal in nature because it comes from God who is eternal, but yet it does not burn the subject forever and ever and ever. It reduces the subject to ashes. But the other thing that, that we've just brought up is that it's, you know, there's no coming back. There's no coming back. The consequence is eternal. Okay? Those cities are never coming back. They are burned to a crisp, burned to ashes. It's final. It's done. And the same will be true of the devil and his angels and his human followers who have lived in wickedness. When the fire comes and consumes them, you see, the Bible describes a consuming fire that burns things up, okay? So yes, there is torment. Yes, there is suffering. But there is also death. 
There's also reduction to ashes. There's a finality to this fire that God sends. And I think that's important to understand that God brings closure to this event. He brings a finality to this event. It's not that He just keeps it on going forever and ever. And like, I'm, like, you know, a million years later, God's like, I don't think you've suffered enough. I don't think you've suffered. I'm going to keep you alive longer. And then He just turns up the heat, roasts people more. And like a billion years later, you haven't even touched the first millisecond of eternity after a billion years. 100 billion years beyond that, you still haven't hit the first microsecond of eternity. You know, how endless and how ridiculous that sounds when you really think about it. What's the point? You know, why? And this, and this goes back to the idea that many people think you have an indestructible, immortal soul. And so that means that if you are evil, God cannot kill you but you have to live in hellfire forever and ever and ever and ever because you're, you're indestructible, you're immortal. But didn't we learn in the Bible, where does this idea come from, an immortal soul? The Bible says that the soul who sins will die. <laughs> in other words, you're not immortal. The Bible says that this, this mortal must put on immortality when Jesus comes again. So we're not immortal. Okay? Um, Ezekiel 18.4 and 18.20 is where we find the references, the soul who sins will die. We learned about what it really means to be, you know, to live and also to die. We learned about what that really means. Um, the Bible is very clear about that. So a lot of people, they have misunderstood this topic because they think that, they think that you're, somehow your soul can live separate from the body and will be indestructible and so you must be tormented. The Bible talks about body and soul being tormented in hellfire. There is torment. Did Jesus suffer before he died on the cross? He did. He yes. did. He suffered. He was tormented. He was, he was treated terribly. And then he died. He gave up his life on the cross of Calvary. If the wages of sin was eternal suffering and endless torment forever and ever and ever and ever and ever, then did Jesus really pay it? And at the beginning of our study, I asked you the question, what is more merciful, a quick death or endless suffering? So you have to think about that. Who is God really? Because you all just judged God and called him unmerciful in a way, right? If, if it's true that God will torment everybody who rejects him for all endless eternity. And after, you know, trillions and trillions of billions of years, God hasn't entered the first second of torment for the wicked. I mean, that is ludicrous. What kind of a madman are we painting God to be? When the Bible tells us that the eternal fire burns people up to ashes, yes, there is suffering. And then there's death. And there's closure. And God wipes away all tears from our eyes. And there's no more death or suffering and all these things. You see, the Bible describes very clearly that there is closure to this event. That God closes what has happened with sin and all of this evil that has happened in the world through that lake of fire, that he's not going to let the tears keep flowing and the suffering keep going. God is not about suffering. God is about love. And God is merciful and good even to those who are not good. Isn't that true? Yes. God says, be merciful even to your enemies. Love your enemies. Does God practice what he preaches? Is God consistent yeah. with his word? He is. Yes. Absolutely. He practices what he preaches. God is merciful even to those who don't deserve mercy. And the Bible is so clear. So we have to understand that, 
that what God does to judge the wicked will be fully consistent with who he is in character. That is, the, that is the biblical reality of these teachings. We have to understand and not be painting God out to be a tyrant like the devil wants him to be painted through false teachings, but letting the truth be known about who God really is and how God is revealed in his word and how his final judgment comes about. Now, there are more things that we can look at here. Mark 9, verse 43. And some of you might not even have verse 43 in your Bible, I'm guessing. Yeah, if, yeah go take a look. Mark 9, 43. Let's just make sure. You're like, how could my Bible not have a verse? Well, I've studied this a few times, and I know that some of the modern Bibles don't have some of these verses. Yeah. Well, because they're using certain manuscripts that are missing verses. That's a whole different story. So, Mark 9 and verse... Does anyone have 43? I have it. Anyone not have 43? You don't I have see somebody who doesn't have 43. Well, do your guys have it? You guys do have yes, it? Yes, I do. Okay, good. All right, who can read verse 43 for us from Mark 9? In need. Okay. If your hands cause you to sin, cut them off. Is there more to it? It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell, where the fire never goes out. Okay, where the fire never goes out. Now, you, what version are you reading from today? NIV. NIV? Okay, and how does your version read it? And if thy hand offend thee, cut it off. It is better for I'm missing 44. Yeah, 44 is what's missing here. 44 is the one that's missing? Yeah. Okay. So maybe 40. You don't have 43 or 44? 44. So that's the one that's missing that I was thinking of then. Okay. I got another one for you, Matthew 17 21. So, yeah. That's a whole other thing. I'd love sometime to go through our Bible, a Bible series together with you all where we can look at some of the reasons behind why that is. Uh, I think you'd be fascinated to learn the story behind what's going on with the, the Bibles of today. Um, so, what, what? What's happened to the Bibles? Don't hang on with that question right now or we won't finish our study. <laughs> yeah, I've never seen this in my life. Well, I'm glad that you realized it tonight. So after this, you can ask me more questions. Um, but tell me what you got in your Bible, what you've got there. King James Version. Yeah. And if thy hand offended thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter into life maimed than having two hands to go into hell, into the fire that never shall be quenched. Okay, tell me the last part of your verse 43, how it read again from the NIV. The last verse of 43 states, yeah. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell. Last phrase. Where the fire never goes out. Okay. There's a bit of a difference between those two concepts. Now, what I want you to understand is that the translators of the King James Bible, okay, and there are other good translations, but the translators of the King James Bible took a very word-for-word -word approach to their translation. The translators of a lot of the modern versions, like the NIV, they take more of a thought-for-thought manner of translation, which means they give you interpretation a lot more than what you would read if you're just coming across word for word style. If you're coming across, if you're taking someone's idea and you're saying, 
I understand your idea this way, so now I'm going to word it this way. That's what they call a thought-for-thought -thought translation. I understand that idea this way, so I'm going to word it this way and explain it this way. So that's what we just read, is how somebody thinks it should be understood. When we looked at the King James, we were reading how it comes across from the original. Word for word, that's how it was translated. That's what, it, that was, what was in the underlying original language. Okay? Does that make sense? So here it says that the fire will never go out, but the other one says it will not be quenched. In other words, you're not going to put it out. No one's going to put it out. When it burns out on its own, it will burn out. Making sense to see the difference there? Yes. So something that can't be quenched means you can't put it out. You can't call the fire department and say, hey, come on, we got a fire down here. Please put this out. Sorry, not going to happen. It's not going to go out until it burns out, until it's done its work. God has sent that fire to burn up the wicked, and it will do exactly that. For exactly the cause God has sent it, that fire will burn. And so the other aspect of this, you know, Jesus tells you, you know, do whatever you can to avoid that, that loss, right? Do whatever you can. Although he's not telling us to go around, go around mutilating ourselves, but he's trying to make a strong word picture that, hey, if you've got something in your life that's dragging you into sin, a relationship, whatever it is, distance yourself, you know? Don't go to hell because you thought something else tasted better for the moment in the short term. God is saying, don't, don't go there. It's dangerous. So, so cut off all practice of sin is really what the Lord is teaching us here so that you can avoid going to that place of fire that will never be quenched. And the Bible also says in verse 44, where their worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. That's verse 44 for those of you who don't have it in your Bible. That's a different story. Okay, so you might ask the question, where their worm dies not, where is that taken from? Well, we find it in Isaiah 66. It's an expression used in the Old Testament. But you notice what's interesting here. In the original language of the New Testament, which was Greek, some people think, believe there was maybe some Aramaic uh, documents as well, but uh, we definitely have primarily as all Greek, original New Testament. So in the Greek here, we have the word Gehenna that is used. This is the word that everyone understands to mean hell, okay? When you talk about Gehenna. Now, the word Gehenna, it actually means the um, valley of the sons of Hinnom. Gehenna, valley of the sons of Hinnom. This valley actually was outside of Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem. There was a valley outside of the city of Jerusalem called the valley of the sons of Hinnom. In this valley, Garbage was put, trash of all kinds, waste of all, of all kinds. People have needed garbage disposal heaps for a long time, right? <laughs> and so they would always put fires out there to burn things up, to consume things. So Jesus was saying, look, you're going to be taken out with the trash into the place of fire where there's always worms and there's death and there's just... He was using a word picture of fire outside the city of Jerusalem. Now, does that ring a bell with Revelation? fire outside the city of New Jerusalem, the lake of fire. So there was, a, there was a historical picture of Jerusalem and the fires outside leading us to look at the end times with Jerusalem, the New Jerusalem, and then the lake of fire on the outside. Jesus says, you don't want to be out there in the place of waste, the place of burning, the place of death, where there's decaying you know, animals out there, flesh, meat flesh with flies and maggots and worms. There's always something new to eat and feed on. Does that make sense? I mean, it sounds kind of gross. I'm glad we didn't just have breakfast, 
We did have dinner, but hey. <laughs> um, so that's kind of the word picture Jesus is giving us to parallel with the end time events. So a couple other words that are used. There's a word, Tartarus, which is only used once in the New Testament. It's translated as hell. Another word that's used is the word Hades that is sometimes in the King James rendered that way. A lot of the modern Bibles render the word Hades simply as Hades. They just say Hades. That's different than Gehenna. That's obviously different. And Hades was a concept in the Greek, Greek world of the you know, afterlife or underworld. It was, a, it was a Greek concept. And so it is sometimes referenced in parables, like the parable or the teaching of the rich man Lazarus. Okay, some people say that's not a parable because it has a man's name in it. Well, if you look at the whole list of parables you know, preceding it and you look at the nature of it, you know, the guy in hell or in Hades is calling for a drop of water on his tongue to cool him. And it's like, okay, if you're suffering in hellfire, are you going to ask for a drop of water? Like literally, are you going to ask for a drop of water? Is that going to cool you off if you're suffering in the flames? No. Are you going to have a logical conversation with the saved while you're in the flames of hell? Like clearly Jesus was teaching a lesson for us. It was a, it was a parable. Now you ask, why would he use a real name? Why would he use Lazarus? Because guess what? At the, at the end of that parable, this is in Luke 16, at the end of that parable, he says that if even if someone comes to them from the dead, they still won't believe. They have Moses and the prophets, the scriptures, let them hear them. And guess what happened? Jesus came and Jesus gave them the scriptures and the leaders of Israel rejected it. They didn't believe it. And guess what else happened? Jesus raised up a friend. His name was Lazarus. He said, Lazarus, come forth, raised him from the dead. Did they still believe in, did they believe in Jesus after that? No, no, they didn't. In fact, so a lot of people did, saw it, they saw it and they believed. Wow, Jesus raised him from the dead. They re he raised Lazarus. But the hard-hearted leaders who rejected Jesus, they said, you know what? We have to kill Lazarus because people are believing in Jesus because of Lazarus. So now let's kill him. So they didn't believe even with Lazarus coming back from the dead. So you think there's a reason Jesus used the name of Lazarus and these rich men who had all these riches, including spiritual riches, but they rejected the truth and they treated the poor like dirt and they didn't share the gospel or any good news. They hindered people from entering the kingdom of heaven. Wow. Isn't that incredible when you think about it? So there's a reason Jesus used the name there. And you follow that thing out and you can see very clearly it's a parable because you're, I mean, are you going to say someone's got a tongue in hellfire and they're begging for water and they, get, they want it just to drop a water? No, you're not, you would never say that if that was a literal conversation. You, would, you wouldn't say that. And it talks about Abraham's bosom. There's a lot of figurative stuff in there, you know. So we have to understand that clearly in its context and realize he doesn't even use the word Gehenna. He uses the word Hades. Speaking about the Greek concept of the underworld. So very clearly he's drawing from these sources to explain a point. That's the point of what Jesus was saying there. So let's look at a couple other verses and we'll wrap up our lesson here soon. That's a proverbial soon. <laughs> no, we, I'm serious. We'll, we'll finish soon. Okay, so... What is the punishment for sin? Thank you very much. The Bible says in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. 
Genesis 2.17, God said, if you eat of the fruit, you will surely die. Death is the wages of sin. The Bible also tells us in Revelation 20 and verse 14 that the lake of fire is called the second death. In other words, you would expect that those who burn up in it are going to die because God says that's the wages of sin, death. So if it was something else, if it had to be eternal torment in an endless flame, then Jesus didn't pay that, did he? He's like, oh, I took the mercy card. I just died on the cross, but you guys are going to suffer for eternity. Like, wait a second here. That just doesn't make sense. See, Jesus did pay the wages of sin. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. The Bible says that the, the lake of fire is called the second death. So we have to understand that. And as a matter of fact, notice this. Let's turn to Revelation 20 for just a moment. Revelation 20 and verse 14. The Bible says here in Revelation 20 and verse 14, and death and hell, the King James reads, death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. Now we just looked at all those Greek words, so some of you are wondering which Greek word is used here. All right, the modern Bible is actually probably rendered this as Hades, so if you have a modern Bible, you probably know what it says there. So it's actually Hades, death and Hades. Um, in, other, in other words, understanding death and the grave. By the way, that's something I neglected to mention, that the word Hades in the Bible, also in the King James, is sometimes translated as hell and sometimes translated as the grave. So oftentimes Hades was taking a Greek concept to explain the concept of the grave, okay? So when the Bible says that death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, in other words, death and the grave where dead people go, death, the concept of death, and the grave where dead people go, delivered up the dead who were in them. Does that make sense? Yes. How the Bible is describing it? And then it says that death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. Doesn't it say that in this verse? It says that death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, which is the second death. And guess what? That's telling us that death will be no more. The grave will be no more because everything is finalized in the lake of fire. Everything is finished in the lake of fire. There's no coming back from it. And guess what? There's no more death. Revelation 21 and verse 4, God said, it says, God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. There shall be no more death. Why? Because it was thrown into the lake of fire and it's not coming back. Neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain. No more pain, you see? There can't be suffering forever if there's no more pain, right? Yeah, no more pain. And then it says, for the former things are passed away. And then it says that God, verse 5, it says, he, he that sat up on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. Very powerful words of how God brings the universe together. You may also remember the most famous gospel verse in the Bible, even the most famous verse in the Bible. What is that verse? John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. According to John 3.16, what are the two choices, the two options? Perish, death, or eternal life, everlasting life. There's only two choices. It's not going to be everlasting life in hellfire, getting roasted, or everlasting life in heaven. No. 
The two choices are eternal life for those who believe in Jesus or you perish, you die. The wages of sin is death. To perish means to be no more. See, a lot of people want to want to toss out these words like ashes, like burn up, be consumed, perish, die. You know, all these words, we have a handful of words, and then we get hung up on the words, you know, eternal fire, everlasting fire. And we're like, well, see, it says everlasting fire. Well, yeah, because it comes from an everlasting God. So people are misunderstanding that. And in the process, when they say it, when they misunderstand it, they throw out the word death. They throw out the word ashes. They throw out the word perish. They throw out a whole bunch of words that are very clearly meaning exactly what they mean. So, so let's not miss that. We have misunderstood what the eternal fire means because according to the Bible, eternal fire reduces to ashes and there's no more flame. That's exactly what happened with Sodom and Gomorrah. So we have misunderstood. We need to make sure we understand it all in the right context. And then we'll realize who God really is that God is love, that God is just, God is fair, God is merciful. Yeah, praise God. The whole picture starts coming together of who the Lord is. Now, this leaves for us a final question or two, which I'm going to answer very quickly. Okay, first of all, you can read this later. Micah 7.18 talks about God being so merciful. And we see that God is mercy. His character stays true in his act of judgment, yes? His character stays true in the act of judgment. Um, we kind of talked about this already, but I mean, if a parent takes a child and beats them with a stick for 25 years because maybe that child didn't make their bed, what would you say about that parent? The kid didn't make his bed, now you're going to take that child and beat him for 25 years with a stick every day? Sicko. You would say that parent is a yeah, sicko. That parent is a sicko. There's something, the parent is deranged. It's not the child because that punishment doesn't fit the crime. Correct. And yet, how would we say that about God, who is love, who is just, who is merciful, who is fair, and who is righteous? Would we say that about God? Like, you have to put it together. Like, if we would say that about a parent who beats somebody every day for 25 years just because they committed one little sin in a short amount of time, how is that any different from somebody committing a sin for, a, say, a whole life, 70 years, wicked sinner, every day living in sin? All right? Now, 30 billion years, 100 billion years, a trillion billion years, and you haven't reached the first second of eternity, and you're going to suffer and suffer and suffer? Like, that doesn't fit the crime. And life comes from God. God is the sustainer of life. So you have to understand it all in that context. Here's the last, the last part that you need to know. And we're closing with this section here. Okay? Some of these verses, I will just advise you to, to look them up later. But this comes down to the devil. Revelation 20, verse 10, that we started with. This is what it reads about the devil. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, or had been thrown, and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. Okay, so the devil, here it says, that the fire and brimstone will torment the devil, and it says day and night forever and ever. The next question we have to ask is, 
How long is forever and ever in this case? Because this verse says that the devil will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So the question that we have is, how long is forever? Because we did read in Ezekiel 28 that the devil is also reduced to ashes. We read in Malachi 4 that the devil is reduced to ashes. We read in Jude that the city is turned to ashes and that's what will happen to the wicked. You would expect the devil too because the fire was made for the devil and his angels, right? So you'd expect, okay, it's got to end. So how long is this phrase forever and ever? The question I have for us tonight is, do we understand this phrase the way the Bible uses this phrase or the way we in our culture think that phrase should be used. Because the way the Bible uses the word forever, in the Hebrew Old Testament, it's the word olam. In the Greek New Testament, it's the word ionios or ionion. So how does the Bible use it? Do you know there are many references throughout Scripture in the Old Testament, for example, of things that use the word olam or forever, but those things have already ended? Really? Oh, yes. So you might ask the question, what defines this forever? What does it look like? Let me share with you some examples. Jonah 2.6, the Bible says that he was barred in forever in the belly of this great whale. But by the end of that book, in fact, in Jonah 1.17, it said that Jonah was literally three days and three nights in the heart of that, that beast, that whale. So three days and three nights, but it said he was there forever. How is the Bible using it? The Bible was using it as hyperbole to describe the intensity, the long, seemingly very long, enduring situation of being inside that creature and not even knowing when it's going to end. But literally, it ended three days and three nights later. So there was a literal time, but there was this expression, olam, in the Hebrew, forever. But it ended. It finished. There are some other examples, like, for example, Samuel. Hannah, in 1 Samuel 1.22, gave her son Samuel to be always forever before the Lord, there in the temple. But is he still there in the, in the temple? It was the Hebrew word, olam, forever. He is to be there forever. Well, the Bible says, later it clarifies, that he was going to be there as long as he lives. In other words, for his whole life. So it was forever with a context. It had a context to it. That forever had an ending to as long as his life was, as long as he lived, that was the forever. Does that make sense? Yes. So it's describing intensity. It's describing some endurance. It's, it's maybe just making a very strong point about it, but it does have an ending point. Okay. Other examples, slaves in the Old Testament, if they wanted to serve their master forever, they would go up to a side of a door and get a, a pen and they, an awl, they would drive a hole in the man's ear. And they would say, all right, you're going to be a slave forever. You're going to serve this man forever. Do you think they're going to serve for all eternity? In fact, they've already died. They're not still serving. They're in the grave dead right now. <laughs> so they're not still serving that person forever. And ultimately, forever, they're serving God. They're going to be with the Lord if they've given their lives fully to Him. So you have the term forever used, but it had an ending when the person would die. And they're not going to keep serving that person throughout all of eternity with God. That's a different story. So there's a context to that forever. And it has to do with the nature of the person or the thing or the situation. If you say God, he's everlasting, he's forever. He's literally forever because there's without end, without beginning, without end. The Bible describes very clearly the nature of God. Okay, 
when you have other situations, you have a context. There's always a context to that concept of forever, oftentimes using hyperbole, describing the intensity of a situation. So yes, the devil will be tormented day and night forever and ever, as long as God chooses to let that suffering last. But then when it ends, it ends. Because the Bible says he'll be reduced to ashes. And the Bible says that fire happens right out there on the surface of the earth, around the city, and we're not going to look at that fire for all eternity. The Bible says the, the righteous can go out and walk on top of the ashes. The Bible says God makes the whole world new and every tear is wiped away. All that evil is gone away. There will be no more death, no more pain, no more suffering. All of it is gone forever. Making sense? So, so God wants us to experience the joy of eternity, all endless eternity, right? With Him, as the nature of God is, without beginning, without end. God wants us to have that eternity with Him and to not be snuffed out in the flames of the lake of fire. So let's give our hearts fully to God. What do you say? You know, let's follow God and let's, let's be sure we understand our Bibles and preach them rightly and represent God rightly. Let's pray as we finish up. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your wonderful love. Thank you for your mercies and your blessings here. We just pray that you will be with us all to truly and clearly understand and know your word and live by your word. Lord, may you give us your grace and help us to anticipate the wonderful things you have in store for us, but also to preach the message of truth that will represent your character correctly and not as the devil would have us to misunderstand you by misunderstanding the truth about the subject of hellfire. Lord, we thank you for your blessings this evening and we thank you for the truth in the Bible. May your word be crystal clear to our hearts and minds that we might glorify you. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen.